You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association this month with Connect, and this is session 46. Welcome back to Physio Matters. I'm still Jack Chu, and if you haven't already, then do please revisit uh, or visit the uh, last few episodes we've had. We've had a really busy few uh, months and, and certainly don't want you missing out on it because some of them are a bit fairly niche topics. The Diagnostic Ultrasound with Stu Wildman, we then tipped over into the million downloads which then took us to free speech and, and agitation with Adam Meekins in a special bonus edition which then brought us fairly soon afterwards to Chris Tack and Rob Tyre about combat sports and martial arts which was brilliant because it flowed in one take and these were really useful conversations that resonate and transcend beyond just those specific niche topics and so if you if you're playing catch up and we know that especially tail end of summer things sort of slow down sometimes and and you've, you've got a bit of catching up to do i certainly encourage that because it's really important um they're, they're really interesting episodes um, and, and really interesting characters that you should be following on social media if you haven't already massive thanks to them as well as to you guys for all your support as ever i'm excited to bring you an episode now which has been a hell of a long time coming really i mean it's a conversation with a company called Connect, um, who are based up in, initially originally based up in the northeast, and I'm aware of them for many reasons, but one of them being that Rob Tyer, who you'll have heard on the podcast before, works for them. And um, the, the, around 12 months ago, we started to talk to them, uh, got chatting to them at Physio UK, partly through contact Matt Wyatt, who's uh, on this podcast. And he, he, they were, they were, we were discussing some of the similarities and differences that we had, particularly around service delivery and, and the way in which we try and move forward as a profession and started to realise that we were making a lot of the same noises, which was cool. And, and when we were talking about the underlying values, certainly when it came to certain companies or, or the way that we run teams or the way that we try and promote mentorship, etc., um, there were a lot, a lot of similarities, which were brilliant. And and one of the brave things they did, I think, I think it's fairly brave, is when we were coming to agreements, they then welcomed me to come and shine a light around what they've been doing, uh, visit them a couple of times, um, which I've done over the last 12 months, talk to them, their staff, and pretty much anyone I met from their executive chair, Andrew Walton, another person that's on the on this podcast, as well as anyone through to their HR director, Lisa Davidson, and any other contacts that I've the contacts that I've had with them, and meeting lots of their staff over the time. There's a lot of consistency of, of message, and uh, searching around for, for skeletons in the closet and, and not finding much. So there's a lot of consistency there, and I've been really impressed with it. Now, one of the things that kept coming up, no matter who I spoke to, was this concept of promoting clinical excellence and, and then obviously it's uh, trying to define that and what do we mean and is that just a buzzword is it just corporate speak and and when we when we drilled down to stuff it seemed like there were there were a lot to really share and and uh, oh I wish I wish I'd have bottled up those conversations and edited them together but instead we we decided to do it more formally than that and got three three wise men together uh, with Graham Wilkes Matt Wyatt and Andrew Walton and uh, the various different roles that they have within Connect to talk about these sorts of issues. And um, many thanks to Pure Sports Med in Canary Wharf for hosting. They give us a clinic room for us to just host this because obviously logistically it's awkward when you're trying to get four people in a room and they're very busy men. So I really appreciate their time. And a fair play to fair play to Connect for peek behind the curtains, um, which is which is really impressive. It reminds me a lot of when I first went down to what was then Poms, which is now iPops, when I interviewed my now boss. Uh, at least part of the week, which is Paula Deacon 
and um, and and did my little Chewy Theroux impression, snooping around, interviewing staff, and trying to work out what's going on, scratching beneath the surface. And I was very impressed there, and I'm very impressed again over the last 12 months of conversation as to what we're finding. And so it's great to be able to put an episode together with them uh, to try and just share what we think clinical excellence is and how that scales up beyond just that interface with a patient. Sometimes we can kind of get that and there's lots of, all of our podcasts are about clinical excellence in specific areas. What does it mean when it then goes up the chain and how can we try and develop some consistency? So I hope you like this episode. I'm sure you will. I'll see you at the other side of this for a bit of a debrief and uh, a few final thoughts from me now that I've had a chance to listen to the edit. I'd enjoy. Okay, so as part of an ongoing conversation really between Choose Health and Connect Health, I think it's really interesting to me that a lot of the common themes that came up was something that is considered usually quite abstract, which is an idea of clinical excellence, which all sounds rather pretty, but actually putting the meat on the bones of what that means um, can go in lots of different tangents. So we've got lots of different tangents here today, um, and it's not a one-on-one, a one-on-three interview, and I don't think we've necessarily done one like that before, so it's at a scale that's ever-growing. And today with three gentlemen from Connect, I'm going to discuss clinical excellence in all its forms. Uh, before I butcher introductions and get something wrong, I'll ask them to introduce themselves, starting with you, Andrew, if you don't mind. Hi, uh, I'm Andrew Bolton. I'm a physiotherapist by background. I founded Connect back in 1989. I'm now executive chair. Um, I'm a visiting professor at Leeds Beckett University. I've been for about a year. Uh, I'm the chair of a county sports partnership, which is funded by Sport England. Uh, and I was a founding director of a social prescribing charity. Fantastic. And so, clinician by background in MSK? Yeah. But not seeing patients right now, I imagine, in other roles? No, I, 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 just as the, as the organisations got bigger, I had to give up my clinical work. That's been quite nice, because I've seen it from both sides of the fence. But I think, actually, my role of executive chair is enhanced by my empathy for what we do because I did 25 years as a clinic, 20, 25 years as a clinician. Yeah. With the, and with those, that, that, that duration in clinic, I mean, you, you can't imagine you can take that hat off. It just gets, uh, it, it just uh, has to be added to, I suppose. Really. I, I analyse people's gait walking down the street all the time. <laughs> I imagine. And Graham? Yeah, so I'm Graham Wilkes. I'm a consultant in sports and exercise medicine. I've been with Connect Health for 11 years now. Um, just probably worth a brief briefly about my background. I started life in general practice. I was a GP partner in the west of Newcastle for 13 years and I knew nothing about MSK, absolutely nothing. I was a typical GP. Um, And then by chance I was drawn into rugby union through one of my partners. I became the the medical officer for Newcastle Falcons for 15 years, trained in sports and exercise medicine. Um, and 11 years ago, uh, Andrew came and um, plucked me from general practice um, to a, a role with uh, Connect. I was still working in elite sport, which I still am. I work for the English Institute of Sport one session per week. But now I've transited through GP to GP with special interest to consultant in sports and exercise medicine. And I'm medical director for Connect and responsible for about 300 clinicians who are mainly physiotherapists. Fantastic. Well, we'll certainly come back to that um, that primary care beginning in, in general practice uh, later on in the chat, especially with you stoking the fire immediately about the fact that you knew nothing. Sure. <laughs> Matthew. 
Good afternoon. Um, I'm Matthew Wyatt. I'm the consultant physiotherapist for Connect and clinically lead our Southern Services. Um, I've been for Connect for almost exactly a year now, and before that, I worked for the NHS for 15 years um, in various MSK clinical services um, and varying leadership roles within London teaching hospitals. Um, we met. We first met actually as well via the role that you've had working with the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, the CSP. Um, and so you've, and you've had various hats that you've worn in that over the years, I understand. Yeah, so currently I sit on CSP Council representing London and I also chair the Research and Development and Practice and Development Committees for the CSP. And in, in terms of your clinical content and things like that in your current role, what's, what's that entail? Um, so about 50% clinical, 50% um, education and leadership within the organisation. Typically I see about 100 patients a week in um, group seminars but also one-to-one -one, um, cases as well. Fantastic, so we've got various different levels from through clinical, although all with clinical backgrounds don't get me wrong, we've got the clinical through the operational to the organisational and we're going to try and cover that ground in let's hope just over an hour and so we'll be we best get to it. Um, this, this abstract term that made us bring it all together Clinical excellence, what does it mean to each of you and what do you feel the key factors are separating excellence from poor practice? So if I first go to you, Matthew. Okay, what does clinical excellence mean to me? Um, I think clinical excellence probably would be the perfect storm and the perfect combination of evidence-based practice, shared decision-making and the true use of the biopsychosocial model. What I mean by that in terms of evidence-based practice is really the, the truest sense of evidence-based practice. And I personally like Eric Meir's um, funnel model of evidence-based practice rather than the traditional stools or Venn diagrams. So about the clinician really synthesizing the evidence and then coming to a um, informed shared decision with the patient about the evidence-based options of care rather than sometimes what it gets corrupted to of doing whatever the clinician or whatever the practitioner feels uh, or the patient feels is the right thing. Um, say half of that is really shared decision making with the patient about how we deliver evidence-based care rather than putting our own preferences upon them and really making it a focus on N equals 1 individualised care that the patient's got, a choice of options about how they interact with treatment, rehab or not, as the case may be. Mm. And then the final thing I mentioned was about biopsychosocial, really making sure that we're aware that every single patient has a BP and S in different um, variations and different parameters um, and certainly not the biopsychosocial model gets banded around which is forgetting the B and the B is a big factor for some patients and others it's a it's a very small B and it's finding that balance and the N equals one for that patient. And as, as the wider um, existential philosophical question goes on then he would say that the, the B has to underpin us as a, a body of matter and so we certainly need to not leave the biological too far behind because the other things could have supposed be seen to lay on top of that. Um, now, what do you feel, because that, that that you've described, and I'm looking for it and find, struggling to find anything to disagree with there, what prizes that away from what would be considered poor practice, do you feel? Um, I, I think it, it's a sort of getting it right, and certainly if you think about quality, for me quality is clinical effectiveness over value as well. I think 
Traditionally in NHS physio services, we've probably been happy to make patients wait 10, 12, 18 weeks to then have the kitchen sink thrown at them, rather than actually getting them to in a timely manner and giving them what they need, rather than necessarily what they want or we think they need. Yeah, no, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. I think you, you're describing something away from, away from sort of just a systematic conveyor belt that we've, we've traditionally known, so that makes a lot of sense. Graham, to bring you in then, what, what's your sort of take on that question? What's clinical excellence mean to you? Yeah, well, I think the way I'm going to answer this question is that I, I have this vision, um, and it's a slide when I teach, of, of a room and some stairs down into it, and, and the clinician's at the bottom in the room, the patient opens the door and comes in. And I think for me, clinical excellence is, first of all, that within that room all the facilities and structures are there to, to not only help the clinician but help the patient uh, so that when they go up the stairs and out of the room again um, that, that they've, they've achieved uh, a benefit in terms of why they came in the room. Um, I think one of the key things for me about clinical excellence is that the clinician in the room um, should uh, produce a good clinical outcome for the patient but I think one of the key things is that if they can't produce that outcome, they need to recognise that they, they're unable to deliver that for the patient uh, and, and be able to direct them to someone who, who could. So I think, for me, clinical effectiveness is about um, not only providing that outcome yourself, or, but perhaps directing the patient to where that outcome may be, or actually occasionally recognising that there may not be a good clinical outcome and trying to deal, out, deal with that with the patient. Mm -hmm. That's often one of the toughest things as a, a clinician, especially uh, we've all been in those situations where we, we want to put a cape on at the beginning of the day and, and solve the world's problems and, and, and micromanage that circumstance. So to, to know where to signpost and to know where to go and know when there is someone better qualified or better suited to, to help someone. Now, that's, that's easier said than done, though, when it's got you know, complex and enthusiastic individuals. Sure. Um, so implementing that evidence-based model of, of, that you're describing, how do you feel that that... We, we almost need to try and sell clinical excellence that you're describing to the wider community, shall we say. How, how do you feel that that's best? Yeah, I think, I think one of the key things is that um, when patients come into the room and they leave, I think sometimes you can think that you've done good and, and you have. Sometimes you think you've done a good job and maybe you haven't. I think one of the key things around clinical practice is to have the feedback, um, which, which is partly um, subjective, but, but that objective feedback um, to, 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 to guide um, the, the, the outcome um, assessment. So I think tr traditionally there's been a lot of direct mentoring, people sitting in, um, and I think that's important to, to get that feedback. But I think mechanisms to, to feedback um, hard evidence of, of outcomes, um, and that, that may be a clinical outcome, it may be a patient experience. Uh, and, and I think learning from, from the feedback that comes in objectively, so that you know what your limitations are, and, and you can attempt to improve uh, based on, on that feedback. Mm, that makes that makes sense. Trying to breed humility, not not easy, but but certainly important. Andrew, to, to bring you in, then, what does it mean to you, clinical uh, excellence? Well, it's a it's a it's a never-ending aspiration, isn't it? I'm not quite sure what clinical excellence looks like. 
it's, a, it's about the best an individual can be. So it's not like, you know, I don't think there's any point in your career where you go, right, I'm excellent now, so I'll, st- I'll stop <laughs> developing, is there? And well, I don't know, I, I, do. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, you know, and, and I also, you know, I, I, I look at new grads and I think, you know, there is clinic, well, some, not all of them clearly, but some of them are, are excellent. They're as excellent as they can be given where they are in their careers. Sure. So I, 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 it feels a bit elitist to talk about clinical excellence. It makes me slightly uncomfortable. Mm. Um, what motivates me around clinical excellence and, and, and really is probably one of the driving factors in me doing what I did in setting up the business is actually work. We, we all need to raise, we all need to raise our standards so I'm interested in how we how we do that at scale so it's these other guys jobs to sort of work with individuals my job's slightly different my job is to uh, get the resources for these guys and for the clinical staff so that they can be the best that they can be mm. so I think as a, as a, as a an owner as a, as a as a director as a chairman I think it's my job to to um, to get those resources, but not just to invest directly in the staff, but to create the environment. So, to to invest in the technology, to invest in in the data warehouse, which will will hopefully come on to talk about. There's a whole load of things that need to wrap around clinicians in order to to, to deliver to deliver excellence. Um, and and one other one other point is, uh, it relates to clinical excellence is we need the investment as a profession or as individuals to be able to do that. We've got to go and we've got to demonstrate our value so that that's the, each individual has a role in delivering the best possible outcomes that are for patients. What I want to do is gather that information and part of my role is to take that information, not the data, the information out and, and translate it into a, into a form that commissioners and the system can, can understand because we all know the value of what we do, but not many people out there do, which is why there's a race to bottom on price, whether that be in the private market or in the NHS. There's a squeeze on those resources, and, and resources is, is a factor in delivering that clinical excellence. Mm-hmm. So we've got to fight for more resources in order to deliver. Yeah, you, can't, you can't excel if you're undernourished, if I make it metaphorical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to touch on the first thing you said, is that, and I, I see what you mean, and I do agree, and I, it should be a moving goalpost that we never reach almost you know it's something we're striving for but then the game changes the evidence changes we learn from mistakes that we thought we were aiming towards and so um we've got to make sure we try and watch i bet we'll come to this if we've got to find a way to stay motivated whilst that goalpost moves and feels like it sometimes pulls away from us uh, but yeah i think it's something we should strive for rather than this obvious tangible thing that we know is going to be the right answer when we get there and when we know when we when we get somewhere nearer and uh, there's been certainly circumstances i can think of as a profession as well as as a clinician where um, I always thought that was going to be the right thing, and when you get there, you realise it wasn't as good as where you used to be. So that's one of the that's what makes challenges. That, I think that's what makes life and the, our profession interesting, isn't it? Mm. That actually, you, you know, it, it's going to sustain us for life if 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 if, all, if if you're always striving to be as good as you can be. If you think you've arrived, then I think you I think you're pulling the wool over your own eyes. No, absolutely. Now, one of the things that uh, our listeners are, are well aware of is the importance, I think Matthew, you, you drew on this really nicely, is that there's an importance of, well we talked about it in terms of, of 
biopsychosocial, which is certainly still relevant, um, and this isn't synonymous to that, but there's the medical and non-medical reasoning, which is where I think physiotherapists are in a, a fairly unique position in that we do st straddle between, shall we say, doctors in the medical world formally and say, let's argue, personal trainers who, who would be typically non-medical, and we, we're between those two things. Now, whilst we, we're putting that within the biopsychosocial model, as it stands, I want to ask you guys what your take is on, do you feel musculoskeletal physiotherapy and musculoskeletal practice generally, as Connect deal with it, is over-medicalised or is it moving too far away from its orthopaedic roots? And especially, uh, you're all pretty well qualified to give your take, but Graham, I feel like I want to go straight to you if I can on that question as the medic in the room. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting that I've, I've never this might be my ignorance, considered that physiotherapy came from orthopaedic roots, but, but, but maybe that is my ignorance. Um, yeah, I think, I think in terms of biopsychosocial approach, and that was something clearly as a GP that, that we were very much trained in around how to consult with patients. Um, I think the challenge, the interesting challenge from musculoskeletal is that, and I think it was touched on earlier on, that the, the, the bio part of that remains such a mystery and there's so many unanswered questions that I think we all have, have a huge enthusiasm to, to solve the biomedical bio part of, of the patient's presentation. And, and, and I know this is something that you've covered several times on the podcast is around tendinopathy, which I think is always an interest to us all because it's, it's such a mystery subject and, and we all want to solve that. And, and, and I, I'm no different from that, even with my GP background, that, um, you know, I, I, I want, I think there's a solution to everything biomechanically, uh, and specifically, I believe there's a solution uh, neurally, uh, and putting those two together, I, I still think there's, there's a big area to, to, um, to, to approach. But the psychosocial is incredibly important, and, and certainly one thing that I learned as a GP, uh, and, and sort of a number of, of things that I'll mention from, from GP training that might be of, of relevance, and some, some of them are part of physiotherapy training. So it's around, um, when, again, that patient that walks into the room, um, one of the questions once they start talking um, that I always ask myself is, why is this patient here, and why are they here at this moment in, in their life? And, and you know we can get into talking about presentation of chronic pain etc etc but I think that's a key question because if you if you jump in with the bio, biomedical model um, and, and you haven't appreciated that there are other factors there that, that that's incredibly important so so why are they here why are they here now ideas concerns and expectations is always a good model to have at the back of your mind as as to um, what the patient actually wants out of this because it may differ. Uh, and then the big thing in general practice, it's a little bit a, a around red flags, is the, is the hidden agenda. Um, and they're, th they're three tools that I carry with myself. Why are you here? Why are you here now? What are your ideas, concerns, expectations? And, and is there a hidden agenda here that, that I need to get to the bottom of? And, and I think it's really key. And my last brief point is that I really think we need to get chronic pain and MSK together and, and get a multidisciplinary team that can deal across the biopsychosocial uh, sphere so that there's somebody always available in the team to pick up any potential issue there. I'm realising, uh, 
following your answer, I'm realising that my question, I bet it could have been phrased better because orthopaedic roots, whilst I know what I'm meaning by it, I think a more interesting question would have been about the categorical thinking in terms of more rigid diagnostics of an answer, uh, much like we know, in, 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 if I use the example in, in, in medicine, of, of, although I'm not saying it's straightforward, let's say there is a circumstance where we can get a, a clear, crisp blood test to get a result that gives a diagnostic category that we know we then treat in certain uh, categorical ways. If I rephrase it slightly, um, and I don't need to, we don't need to play all your answer back sure. out. But do you, do you feel that, that that our practice is still wanting to put people into those boxes, or are we are we being appropriately holistic as the evidence suggests we should be? I think there's certainly a move to to, to be more holistic in in presentation, and and, and I think um, certainly one of the teaching. Um, aspects that, that I would pass on to people is that try, trying to decompartmentalize anything into one diagnosis is, is, is a huge error and I, and I think certainly the orthopedic model uh, does that um, and it is a bit of a conveyor belt in, into um, surgical treatment so I think I think there is a, there is a need to consider that there will be a number of of aspects in every presentation, some some biological, some psychosocial, um, and, and it is really important to, to to have some means of assessing what the key elements of that are. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense, Matthew. If I can if I can bring you in, especially on this uh, this thing that um, often gets suggested with the the pendulum swinging far away from that categorical reasoning that I've mentioned before. Do you feel that there's any is that a justified argument you feel? Um, I think it's certainly not in my experience. I think still in my experience dealing with multiple physio services and physiotherapists and working across the profession, I still think that the vast majority of the profession is still sat in the biomedical bubble, a bit more orthopedic. Right. And that's probably an element of where they grow up and learn and train under the orthopedic surgeons and in secondary care. Um, for me, it's about getting that pendulum right. Um, and I do think there are some clinicians that have swung too far, um, but very rarely do I come across them and say to have to sit down with the clinician and say, actually, I think you're a bit too P and S and doing, uh, not doing enough B. I've done it, absolutely. Particularly the clinicians tend to work a bit more on the pains there mm. um, and constantly having to remind patients that just because somebody's got chronic pain doesn't mean they can't develop a new condition. They can still sprain their ankle, yeah. Yeah, or, or they can still prevent somebody present with AS yeah, uh, or something like that. So I think it's always having that index of suspicion mm. and always coming back to red flags and making sure that you're screening the patient from a safety point of view and from a good biological point of view, but then weighing up where this patient is in that spectrum, because to me it's a spectrum. There's no patients who would be, no patients are P, no patients are S. Mm. Um, it's all about what, what rationals. We used to talk about uh, myogenic, orthogenic, um, arthrogenic, things like that. And actually that's the way I think about it is, what percentage potentially are they psycho-socially um, driven, what percentage biological driven, and clinically reasoning that out, and then that, hopefully dictates your treatment approach. And yet another moving picture as well, like those things do 
vary, I imagine, from individual case as well as each day of that person's life. Yeah, if you take example of somebody with an anterior cruciate ligament rupture, we know that they start off as very bio, they've got a big swollen knee, they then may have surgery and go on through that. But then we also know at the end of their journey, the biggest risk factor to them to returning to sport isn't actually the injury, it's the psychological barriers around it and the fear of re-injury and redoing problems. So it swings during any patient's journey mm -hmm. and a skilled clinician can pick that up and work out where they need to target their times and energy with that patient at any moment in time. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I, I wrongly sort of, um, just for the, sake, for the sake of ease and to move conversation, I do sometimes offer spectrums that we know are more complex than a linear line, med over-medicalised, under-medicalised categorical thinking true holism you know we know that these aren't direct lines Andrew to, to, to bring you in on this do you feel um, when you look on having been in the in the industry and, and having practiced for a long time where do you see things going do you see a swinging pendulum that's become a wrecking ball or do you, do you see a progressive line yeah no I, I see well a, um, a bit, of, a bit of all sorts. And I was, I, I'm glad you asked me that because that, that's exactly where my mind was when these other guys were talking. <laughs> you know, I've been around for, you know, as a, as a physio for over thirty years, and you know, with an interest in musculoskeletal, we've seen in the early part of my career, you know, Maitland was going to, you know, follow Maitland, and that'll do everything. Mulligan, Syriacs, all of that stuff, and and some some of the more modern people. But as a profession, we do tend to like to follow trends. It would appear to me. Mm -hmm. What, what, what's interesting when you've been around for a long time is, is you know, what, while outcome measurement is relatively recent and it's got a long way to go before we really understand who we're helping and who we're not, because we've got to work out what they wanted in the first place. Anyway, um, is I can, there are some core attributes to the people that I've worked with who, are, who, without measuring their outcomes, I just thought, God, they're good with patients and the patients seem to get better. And it's not around the technique that they used or how well educated they were in the ticket. It's much more about the way that they manage the patient, their sort of intuitive understanding of the BPS bit. Um, mm. And so I, so I do, I think there's a lot of stuff that I, is questionable in practice, but I think there are some core things in my, my old man hat on, and, and I think BPS is probably actually a really good thing that we're focusing on that and trying to develop skills in because I think it's a fundamental part of, of what not just a physio should do but anybody um, mm. in, a, in the connected I'm field. concerned if we under medicalise in a sense if we were to be if people became complacent in that direction and started to miss things and I don't I don't I don't feel that that's happening in a widespread way but one of the things I really do agree with you on is that part of the reason why people could get away with that is because the rapport with the patient is so important that they could, they could masquerade as a good clinician for a long time, but blagging and, uh, and kind of making friends. If I can just come in on that. Yeah. I, I do think that you know, certainly with a medical background, looking at um, medical student selection, I think one of the, the big concerns at the moment is, is about the 4A star person who's very academic and therefore will be very biological in their approach if, if they haven't got that innate ability to deal with people and relate to them. And I do, I, I do think there is one thing that's taught uh, again in, in general practice is about the doctor as the treatment, so it could be the physio as the treatment, and that's about the person themselves um, actually relating to that patient and, and, and vice versa and, and developing that confidence. 
and that was very topical. I was just listening to the BBC World Service yesterday uh, about uh, a new study that's been done around placebos, and um, what they found was that, that actually the person delivering the message seemed to be the key thing uh, in, in terms of why something worked, uh, and, and they did quite a complex arrangement around sham treatments and placebos, but explaining this is a placebo that I'm giving you, and actually the person who gave it influenced whether that placebo worked or not. So, so I think, I think that there is, there is a, a mix there, but I, I think you can take someone who relates to people and develop them biologically very well to, 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 to provide a really good practitioner more than the other way around. Okay, no, that makes sense. Talking about categories, well, I think the middle ground is the concept of un umbrella diagnoses. You know, let's use subacromial pain, for example, or uh, greater trochanteric pain as, a, as an example. Well, so I'm not going to delve into those case studies, it's not for this podcast, um, but although some of us are probably more of a comfort zone to do so, I certainly would. But with those umbrella diagnoses, as, a, as an organisation, just how might Connect use um, that sort of middle ground as a way of helping people to improve, helping their clinicians to improve in those directions? We've um, basically innovated around our clinical guidelines. We call them 10 out of 10, um, meaning 10 out of 10 score. Um, and and what, what we've tried to do is, is take our guidelines from something that was really quite complex uh, to something that's a little bit more user-friendly. So we have a traffic light system um, for, for our 10 out of 10 uh, conditions and basically green means there's good evidence and you should do this preferentially and, and you actually should, should be always providing patients with treatments from that green traffic light box. There's an amber uh, box which is where the evidence isn't clear and we know lots of those treatments um, work for, for our patients but the evidence doesn't fully back that so the jury's out on that. And then there's a red box where the evidence is fairly clear that it doesn't work and we probably shouldn't be doing that. And what, what we're doing now in terms of innovating is, is starting to, to ask clinicians to code for individual diagnoses how they're actually treating patients and then we, we are now able to link diagnosis, treatment and clinical outcome. And we can start to get a feel in those boxes um, where, where the evidence maybe isn't clear what is actually effective for, for, for patients. And that starts to appropriately blur the lines on what we mean by this term that evidence, because we're talking about sort of scientific literature and how that science is fed, but then evidence emerges from clinical outcomes of Absolutely. that implementation. And as an organisation, you're, you're trying to track that, and we're going to come to the numbers, I'm sure, in, in, in the coming questions. Yeah. Matthew, when it, when it comes to some of the stuff we, we've, we've, we've talked about there over individual clinicians and rapport, I doubt there's much you're going to disagree with about it being important. Do you, do you feel that um, influencing clinicians to try to better those sorts of people skills, etc., sometimes that can be a bit, of a, as a mentor, that can be a, an affront to someone in a sense, you know, I, I know personally I've been guided in certain directions, oh that's my strength, you know, I'm talking to people all the time, but it, we can all benefit from it, but it's quite easy for us to put those barriers up. Do you encounter the barriers a lot? Do you, do you feel people are really open to having their personality scrutinised by a mentor? What's, what's the sort of your experience in that over the years? And now? Um, yeah, I think generally the good clinicians are very open to constructive feedback 
obviously if you just go in there and nail them a criticism they're not going to respond usually well nobody does um, and that's one of the things we're trying to develop as a clinical culture within the organisation is to make people open and, and talk about things openly for example um, we have an internal clinical chat site so people familiar with ICSP or even Twitter where sort of people can discuss stuff but we've got an internal chat site with our clinicians where they can post stuff and we can have conversations in a safe environment they've got access myself as a consultant, Graham as medical director, all our SEMs, or advanced practice physios, and all the physios, we can sort of have a, a group think on things and take that in direction. Um, and I agree with all, uh, all of this sort of, the softer skills are really important, but I think it's all coming back to the biopsychosocial, I think that this is where outcome measures really play an important role, because if we've got all these soft skills, we all know that you can have a patient come into, down the steps into Graham's clinic room, Graham can be lovely in his manner with them, give them a wonderful steroid injection or I can manipulate them or put acupuncture needles into them but actually does that actually have any impact on their life? If we've been really nice to them they'll walk away really happy but actually do they then go back and be able to climb the stairs at home or anything like that and does that actually change an impact on their life? So that's really, really the role of really objectifying that and having outcome measures mm. because I think it's very easy for us to think that our treatments are doing a great job and we're a wonderful person putting our Superman cape on but actually, we really need to evaluate, is that actually having these impacts we are? Or is the patient just nodding and smiling because we're a really nice person? Yeah. Um, and actually, it's really not having that impact. And then, when they then go back to the GP and go, well, the physio was lovely, but it didn't make a blindest bit of difference to me. And then that comes back to Andrew's point about, well, then that gets to the commissioners, and then physio, everybody goes, well, physio's crap, we're going to reduce the spend per head on physio. Well, yeah, I mean, so it's the burden, isn't it? I, I, I'm not saying I'm... I don't think I've got a, a solution to it, but charlatans are brilliant people. People, you know, they they really can. You know, they can they can persuade and they can get people in that direction and get them quite committed to a theme. But essentially, we know that that's not the direction of travel that we want. So we've got to find that middle ground somewhere or uh, lurch within it. You mentioned. Um, can I just ask culture. you a question? You can go on. What's a charlatan? What's a charlatan? Oh, um, so a, a, a confidence trickster is what I always associated as being. Oh, you're having me out no, no, dictionary definition. No, 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 no. It's, it's not about that. It's not about that. It, and it, it, it relates to your people, people, the good, they've got great people skills. Yeah. I, I just, I, I'm a very non-hierarchical person. Yeah. I think if anybody can help somebody, that's, that's a great thing. So and it relates to the point, you don't have to follow evidence all the time. If you can get a good outcome with patients, whatever you're doing, it's a long-lasting outcome. It's not just making them happy so they go back to the GP. Who are we to question it? So I'm just gently pricking at any pomposity that there might be in the room, which I'm sure there isn't, about us as a profession being up by ourselves a little bit. Sure. Or anybody being, you know, actually, mm. if somebody gets great outcomes, if they don't have any qualifications, but they get good outcomes, similarly, if you've got fantastic qualifications but your outcomes are poor, well, to me, you're a shark. You're, you're, you're probably the, the worst of all charlatans, aren't you? Mm. Great, great charlatan. I mean, I agree with what you mean. If you lower the bar of what I mean by a charlatan, and, and actually I'm just saying anyone that disagrees with me is a charlatan and a pseudoscientist, then yeah, absolutely. But if it is someone that is, a, as I say, a confidence trickster that is essentially um, lean, leaning on short-term outcomes and, and doing things that we know yeah. are certainly uh, unscientific to our reading of the literature then I mean, the funny thing is you said who are we to question that's my thing question from I, think, I think the key thing is is 
to me, I mean, we're, we're introducing uh, outcomes and, and to some extent scrutiny of the clinicians. But, but one of the things I've been saying to our clinicians is we, there's so much we don't know about um, what does work and what doesn't work. So, so, so what at the moment we say doesn't work for someone, acupuncture and back pain has gone out. It'll probably come back, it may come back again. And the reason it will come back is because we can demonstrate that it is actually working for a group of people. And I think, you know, what, whatever we provide in that room, if we can demonstrate those outcomes, that becomes the evidence. And I think that's the key thing. And I was just just a, a, an example. I always remember a lady used to come to see me, and she'd been all around the houses trying to find some respite for her arthritic pain medication, you name it. And what she said was the best thing for her was three times a week she went to the high street and had a massage from from a lady who was not you know did massage soft tissue, and I, I, I dare say it was a little bit like a, a visit to the hairdresser, and there was all sorts of things went on there. But she was getting great patient experience and undoubtedly good outcomes. Uh, and, and she probably talked about the news and did a bit of rubbing and, and you know, we're moving away from hands-on, but sometimes that may be the thing to do. Absolutely. Matthew mentioned um, culture, as you mentioned, and that feeds into values, which we've certainly spoken about. I know off the mic, and I've, I've very much uh, found them interesting conversations. That we've had so i want to bring that onto the microphone really is that my understanding well i suppose i can ask you from, from the get-go i suppose andrew is is that culture those values those underpinning philosophies are they accidental or are they something that have kind of carried along through that they're not accidental i think probably the biggest part of my role is to try and maintain the culture i think that's the one of the responsibilities of a, of a, of a chair uh, of a business uh, or of an organisation, and um, a, a lot of people who come to Connect and stay at Connect say it's because of the culture, um, and uh, and that's the same with a lot of, a lot of organisations. And not everybody, you know, uh, and there are many organisations whose cultures are very different to Connect, who who's organ who's who are very successful organisations, and their staff are also very happy. So. It's an individual thing what culture you want to aspire to, and different cultures can, can can deliver different outcomes and different levels of success. Can you give me some examples of what that means to you and to connect? So I can't imagine, unless they're particularly terrible at PR, that I would ask someone about their business's culture and they'd tell me how hostile they like hostility. They like um, people feeling like they can't speak their mind, for example. So that people will associate certain things with what they profess a culture to be but what are the parameters around the culture that you describe for connect and what you're trying to stand for um how long have you got we said an hour um i'll, I'll try to i mean i i think there are what it's back to a point i made earlier about about the job of the board and the and the, and, the, and, the, and me as part of that is to try to create an environment that facilitates whatever outcome there is. And for us, it's about delivering great outcomes for patients, good value for money for the taxpayer, and a good experience for staff. So it's our job to try and create. And, and I, I think hierarchy or a lack of hierarchy is important to create um, an, an open and transparent culture. And I think that's one in which we feel where, where challenge can be brought and we encourage people to challenge and more senior people in the organisation will get out there and have co 
proper conversations with people. I meet every every person who joins the business. I meet within the first month, um, in you know, in, in small groups, eye to eye, so they can look into my eye and they can ask me anything, uh, anything they like. So it's it's trying to create an openness, so that so that when the clinical leadership is sitting down with somebody and talking about their their outcomes, it just feels normal to go, well, you're good at that, but you're not so good at that. What are you doing that's that's really good at that? Because we're going to share that with everybody else and we're going to celebrate it. But the stuff that you're not really good at, either need to get better at or stop doing because it's not achieving anything. Mm. So if we're going to achieve change, there's got to be a large degree of, of, of honesty. So I think, pick out those words, some of those words, but I think that's what I, I, I am trying to perpetuate and I think is something in the organisation. But you have to ask other people. Well, I, I mean, I would come in, a, a, a term I use to describe what can be achieved with Connect Health and one of the reasons I've been here for 11 years is it's a vehicle uh, and it's a vehicle to to achieve things individually and collectively. It's a physiotherapy organisation, I'm not a physiotherapist, but but, um, I think it is a vehicle to to help move physiotherapy forward. Um, Some of the things we've been talking about around data we're constantly working uh, with, with that in mind and what I would say about Andrew when as I said earlier on Andrew came and headhunted me out of general practice and, and he is a guy that really enthused me and he enthuses other people and 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 it's it's not about you know some people think it's about business um, it, it's about um, the profession is about patients, uh, it's about good patient care and I think we all strive for that and, and we need a vehicle to, to get where we want to get and I think that that's a real value um, within the organisation and I think people who come to Connect co- come for that purpose um, mm-hmm. be, be, because and, and we're always open to new ideas um, that, that make sense and, and to try and make those happen. I think that a culture of a culture of multi multi directional feedback and, and, and that open door sort of um, breaking the hierarchies um, makes a lot of sense to me and certainly resonates with my values. Um, however, I, I can use an example where, despite that being core to everything I stand for, I will still stand in front of a group of people, and if I then say you know deliver a lecture or whatever it might be, or deliver some teaching, it's small or large group and stuff, and you say. You know, throw five shots at me. What did you disagree with? What did you agree with? Please, I want all your feedback, good, bad, and ugly, right? And I mean it, I really do, and I'm sure you guys do too. But there is still, then someone puts their hand up and says, Well, yeah, I disagree with pretty much everything, and this is why. Even though you're, you're kind of hungry for that, it still gives this very visceral reaction to like, oh, you Really, there's a bit gut reaction wants you to puff your chest out and say, Well, hold on a minute and you want to get defensive and I think that there's something quite and I hope that's not just me and there's listeners thinking God, well, what's he on about but generally speaking that seems to be a fairly human reaction to it having tried to sow a culture of these things does, does that has that ha- has that happened over the years and you've found a way to mitigate that confront you know that anti-confrontation sort of reaction um, or is it something that um, really it just has to be has to be managed I think unfortunately we're human beings you know, I, I, we're, we're making it sound all great, aren't we? We're all approachable all <laughs> well, of the that's time. That's what I mean. But yeah, no, no. Yeah, sometimes you do get defensive about, you know, we, we've, we all are very committed to, to our professions and, and, and our jobs, and we put a lot into it. And if people attack us, sometimes we're, we, we tend to get a bit defensive. But in essence, really, 
if you if you didn't attack me in such an aggressive way, I would I would would have more of a sensible conversation. Mm. So we're, we're we're not perfect, and and I just want to sort of caveat what Graham said before about us as an organisation. We don't have a monopoly on good ideas. A lot of people have heard me say that before, and we don't. And we don't get it right all of the time. We get it right some of the time. And there's huge variation within our own organisation. What we all want to do, you know, this is about clinical excellence, is try and reduce the amount of variation and shift up the curve. Um, but, you know, we, you, you walk into one room and see something great, and then you walk into the next room and you think, God, are we, are we still doing that? So we don't want to paint a picture. This is all aspirational, but we're investing in a structure, we're trying to create an environment and an organisation and the infrastructure that allows us to reduce that variation and, and, and shift up the scale. And just like we started, you know, we'll never get there. That's part of the pleasure, isn't it? That's part, that's part, part of the, the adventure. Part of the yeah. Matthew, on a clinical, it's a clinical interface then. Um, does, does what I was describing there, that visceral reaction, sort of resonate? Do you encounter it much? And if you've any suggestions as to how to get get around those barriers you know please do share um i think probably andrew's in the head is about about how you do it and it's about professionalism and i think this conversation has been going on on twitter in the last couple of days Absolutely. about actually how how we interact with each other if you go all guns blazing at somebody the chances are they're going to put up the barriers mm-hmm. um and particularly if you sort of do it for people you don't know so it's more about creating a culture where people feel they can speak and permission to speak i think um really big on permission. Certainly when um, we ever we take students into the south, uh, the, uh, I'm the first point of contact and I'm very strict on that because I want to give them a welcome email and I want to give them permission to challenge us on what they do. So I'll write out to the student before I pass them on to the clinical educator and say, look, you're coming into the organisation, you're a fresh pair of eyes, please have permission now to come and question it and come back to us. Mm-hmm. And ideally to the clinicians and the service you're working with, you can't do that, they can talk to me. Mm. Um, and I had a really good experience um, on Tuesday. Uh, we had new graduates come into the organisation for the first time last uh, uh, for their first day last Monday, and they all came and sat with me doing one of my pain management by psychosocial seminars group of um, fifteen back pain patients. And one of the new graduates on a on a seventh day working day afterwards came up to me and said, "I didn't like how you phrased that. I thought you could have done that a bit better." And I was like, "Yes, we're doing something right here," because she feels that she can come. To me, as the lead clinician in the, in the organisation that in the south, because she can voice that, mm. we're getting something right. Absolutely, no, I agree with that. Now, but these things are subjective, though, aren't they? And this is one of the reasons why it's raged on on Twitter, which is often as the you know that it's a place for for hotheads to die out sometimes. But generally, uh, and I'm I'm guilty of that too. But that was that's very subjective to you. You you're delighted with that that fact, whereas to someone else that's confrontation and, and it had that been across a different level of, let's say, a traditional hierarchy, that would be considered as bullying and someone might see that as being um, particularly brazen to, to do that in, in that direction or however something is phrased. And so where, where is the level in terms of things being too softly, softly, whilst we recognise the obvious sort of authoritarian end of the spectrum of, of sort of telling, um, where we still need to try and provoke change in a direction and, and you guys are um, in a situation where you're trying to lead clinical excellence in a scientific evidence-based manner. There is, a, there is a lower level to that in which you don't want to dip beneath. So when those conversations are with someone that, that's 
really doesn't want to hear it, how might you go about trying to be softly, softly, but not too soft that they can slide off it? Yeah, so I think there's carrots and sticks, aren't there? So in an ideal world, you go with your carrots and talk to people about things and have an adult conversation, but sometimes you need to break out your sticks. Um, and I think that's where the sort of data, and I think that's what I was alluding to with my last point, is actually somebody thinks they're getting really great outcomes with whatever treatment, um, but actually the patient feedback from proms and prems, so we use a family test and three texts that are all our clinicians, and the patients get a text message after the appointment. If they think they're great, but then the consistent feedback is not good, then we, we need to broach that with them. And actually, the, the best way to do that is to put that in front of them. Um, beautiful, one of the things we've got is um, that some of our feedback is on phone calls and we can get audio clips of that. Um, and I sat there with a clinical steering group in the last week and we were talking about physiolime and sort of telephone triage. And I played them an audio clip of the patient experience of it. That saying, well, I phoned up and all I got was a phone call. A week later, I got some stick men through the post. I'm like, well, is that the experience we aspire to deliver? So actually, if you can use the patient's own words and yeah, either written or even better in audio, that's a really powerful tool of shifting somebody so that they can see the effect they're having. And then the problems are the other side of that, so you know, looking at are they getting the outcomes that they claim to be getting, or, are they, or have they just got great, the patient, or they've recommended to their friends and family, but actually then they're not actually getting the patient any better. And then we can use the objective data, we can drill down into this and say, actually, all the other clinicians in your service or in the region are getting um, this score on EQ5D for knee um, rehab, yours are significantly less. We'll probably need to unpick why that's the case. Yeah, and that, I suppose that is the, the answer across from, from clinical through to the whole world is that when you have two differences of opinion on subjective take on a matter, and you know, we need to try and find a way to pass those things out if they are truly clashing, and objective information and data is one way of doing that. And now we, we could talk all day about not lurching too far that way because uh, we're not robots, we are all human beings as, as has been mentioned and I'm glad we are but um, the data then I think it's well worth us talking about because it's important, I think most people and most on the podcast that, that clearly care about listening must care about the science and know that numbers are useful for that um, but we also don't want death by numbers and, and for outcome measures to be too much so in that, what, how, how important is collection of data, patient outcomes, patient feedback, etc., and trying to make that to some degree neuro, numeric? I don't think, did you say data farm? Did you, did you mention Data warehouse. Warehouse, yeah. I've made it a farm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but generally, like, uh, the, the, these, these terms, I think, are well worth unpacking. How important are numbers to connect and why? We've invested over the last few years in, um, in having buying and bespoking uh, IT systems that underpin what we do. Um, we've then invested in um, a data warehouse, don't ask me what that is, it just see, it just gives us much Part more. Part of the data farm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, next door to the data tractor. <laughs> the data, yeah. um, so what, what it, it's the functionality which is what's important to us. We, we have a quarter million patients a year. We, have, we had data on, on all of those for years. What the data warehouse has done has allowed us to have visibility, giving us real information in, 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 in real time. That, that, that I think, is, has been transformative for us as an organisation. I'll, I'll let these guys talk more about what it really means in terms of their day-to-day their -day stuff. But what it's done is given us visibility on um, on outcomes, we were challenged 
by the management of the business to say we're spending hundreds of thousands of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds on professional development for, for physio staff. Where's the benefit to it? And we couldn't really, we could, because we didn't have any visibility of outcomes, we weren't able to justify it. Now you can, now you can say, well, look, our, our standards are this, and that's because we make that investment. Mm. Um, the value for the profession as a whole, I, I'm worried about the physio profession and its lack of data, because healthcare commissioners, whether that be in the private sector, and I've just had this conversation with Pure Sportsmen this morning, they're, they're under pressure from the boopers, the access, the PPPs, the, the health insurers, to demonstrate the value in spending, you know, that they, they spend on physiotherapy. And it's exactly the same in the NHS, and both commissioners are short of cash, and that's all around the world, that's not peculiar to the UK. So unless you can demonstrate your value, you're gonna get less and less investment and uh, it's a point they made before, if you're undernourished, you ain't gonna, you, you ain't gonna perform very well. So data is the vital component in demonstrating our value to get greater investment. And there's a real threat to us collectively or individually or organisationally if, if we don't do that. So it, it has had significant impacts on the performance of the organisation, both operationally and clinically. I agree with all of that. I think that the numbers are important, but they are also one of the downsides to it that's sometimes hard to mitigate is that data such as patient outcomes, patient feedback, etc., can be a, a stick to beat clinicians with if they were wanted to fall into line with a certain ethos. Now, whilst by the sound of things, unless you're all incredible actors, it's certainly not why you collect data is to form a weapon against your own staff. You're using it to facilitate the practice, but how... Um, might you try to prize yourselves away from, from others that use numbers as a way of objectifying the subjective just to try and you know, get someone to be on brand, on message and, and toe the party line? Um, I think that's a fair point. There's got to be a combination of autonomy for people to manage their patients in whatever way that they want. But if everybody does that without any parameters and without any supervision and any guidance, then what what we'll see what has happened happening again, which is you just you just get a disconnect between how much investment there is, how much stuff there's being done, and you get waiting lists building up, and that doesn't do anybody any favors. Wild west. So what we've got to do is have some discipline, some parameters, the ten out of ten guidelines, but not a. And it comes back to a cultural point. Sorry, I'll just finish that sentence. But not a, a, so much discipline and so much rigour that, re, that restricts um, the autonomy. We want people to keep their brains switched on. We just want to create a safe environment in which um, what they do is sustainable. So there are some rules, and yes, we do use the systems to try and see whether people... We don't then go around the stick and go, you're point three zero over or under where you need to be. Graham, to bring you in on the, on the data question, so my original one, um, what's it mean, you know, what does the data bring to your role and how do you feel it assists all of your goals to achieving clinical excellence as the topic? Yeah, I, I think the key thing about data, about numbers, it's, it's, it's a bit like the, the evidence base, it's not complete and we don't know what it means. Um, I've been at pains and, and all our clinicians will have heard me say that 
we don't know how the data is going to be. It's all starting to come through now. And some people will have better outcomes than others, and there'll be lots of reasons for that. And so for me, this, this is not a stick to take to individuals. Um, it's, it's, it's to learn um, how we can move forward. And I think that's as, a, as an, an individual, as a team, so a multidisciplinary team, as a whole service. So Ma Ma Matthew has responsibility for the South, and I have responsibility for the business, but also by virtue of that, by, with the profession, my profession is a, a sports exercise consultant, but predominantly physiotherapy. And I think it's, it, it's about learning um, how we can improve and what we can do better individually and collectively. Uh, and, and some people will have worse outcomes because they have more complex patients, and we have to learn that, uh, understand that. Um, but benchmark against people who are who are working on a similar level. So for for, for me, it's it, it's about continual improvement. I think for the physiotherapy profession, as Andrew says, it's about proving the value, which I know is there, and I, and hopefully all physiotherapists believe that 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 um, it, it is there. Uh, and I'll, ju I'll just give you an example of, of where the data ha has been particularly effective. We, we, we took over a service um, uh, from an NHS provider that was on paper with a, with a group of physiotherapists who, who um, like anyone, found the change. It was a huge change, really quite difficult. And they kept telling us that they were good clinicians. And we said, yep, that, that, that's fine, um, but we need, we need to get you onto an IT system so we can start coding, we can look at outcomes uh, and, and, and provide that vehicle. And what, what came out of that after, after several weeks, we, we realised from the data, these were very good clinicians. And, and the thing about it was we've, we've given them now something, some numbers, a piece of paper, if you like, that actually give some justification to, 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 to that quality. And I think that's been really important for, for, for those individuals. And, and we've seen them blossom um, since they've had that self-confidence that actually I am good. And that validation, I suppose, has been very reassuring for us. It's reassuring and it's been rewarding for all of us. Yeah, that, 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 and again, it's back to the systems being put in place that, that have allowed that to happen. And, and, and now they can go to the next stage, hopefully. And, and, and that's a little bit about other people can have a look at that clinician. They are a good clinician. Go and have a look at what they're doing. Um, and for that clinician, how can you improve even more? And what I would say for the profession, that, that we are very much benchmarking often against the surgeons. And we are starting to see some outcomes that are approaching the gold standards of joint replacement. And I think that's huge for the profession because that's going to give the ability on a, on a wide scale to go out and, and attract the funding in, um, which can only be beneficial to, 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 the, to the basics of, of rehabilitation and, and, and what physiotherapy provides. The same question, contestant number three, which is what does data mean to you, Matthew, and, uh, and how do you feel it influences your role in the, in the organisation? Um, I, I think I'll follow on from Graham says, and I'll pick up on your early point about all clinicians like to put the Superman case on. And actually all physios are generally quite competitive individuals. Mm -hmm. So actually when we give them visibility of data, they get competitive about it and they drive on. They want to know why the guy in the next room is getting better scores than they are. And then they go and sit in with him and learn what he's doing so that they can become better themselves. Mm -hmm. So I take your point about that it could become a stick, but actually very rarely does it need to become a stick. Um, and to us, again, it comes back to culture as well. That's what we bring. We try and get into our clinicians and 
clinicians we're bringing into the organisation is we want them to buy into that culture, continuously wanting to be better. It comes back to what we talked about quality being not a, a finish line, but a continuous journey. Mm. That we're always just giving them more data to try and get them on to that journey. Mm. And competitive, sorry to interrupt, but that competitive element is super interesting because I'm not, I doubt this is the direction of travel, but in sales rooms you've got boards of numbers and, and you, you will try to vie for those targets and things like that, whilst I imagine you're not putting those boards up anytime soon so that they're sort of uh, arguing over the points of an EQ5D. Do you, do you feel that that happens naturally when, when numbers come to the, to the table that people will um, try, to, try to better their colleagues or try to improve as a, as a unit? You know, how does that work dynamically, clinically? I think there's a balance there, um, but to answer your point, we do put it up as boards there. We tell, this is not at individual level, we don't give individual, we don't say, Andrew, yours is scores this. So yeah, that's, what I, this. that's what I meant. Yeah. It's like, we don't, yeah. don't do that, but we do put it service level. Yeah. Um, and actually, an example recently is we put, now we're starting to drag those data out of the EQ5D and data warehouse. I've been able to go to one of my teams in the south and say, you're actually the worst uh, team in the country for collection rates, not scores, but collection <laughs> right. rates. Yeah. You've got the worst collection rates in the country. Are you happy with that position? Is that where you want to be? Um, and within a day, they'd, it was about 100 emails, and they'd come up with solutions, and they'd laminated EQ5D scores, and they had it in every clinic, and they would got receptionists roped in to fill it in and give it to every patient. So for me, it's all about the continuous pushing, uh, using that competitive nature in, in a professional nature of commissions to drive quality and change. Yeah, it's inspiring and baiting rather than yeah. like using, like I said, the we, 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 We've got a group of clinicians up in the north who, who are very competitive, and again, it's collection rates. They're competing at the moment between 95 and 100% for collection rates, and, and they are really competing with each other, and there's, there's a winner every month. And that, you know, obviously collection rates is a little less threatening than, than the actual outcomes. But, 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 but that's our policy at the moment. Let's get the data in, and, and so we want the data in, and then we can start having a look at the quality and, and try to understand that. I, I think most people would agree, certainly all physiotherapists would agree, that we're not paid enough. How are we going to get out of that? Because we're adding much more value than we get paid for. Data is going to be part, part of persuading commissioners to give us more money. Outcomes, once we've got good outcome measures and we think they're reliable and robust and we don't, um, and that they'll, they'll bear scrutiny, then why wouldn't we move towards a situation of uh, performance-related bonuses based on clinical outcomes? And why shouldn't we, with our, whoever our commissioners happen to be, is get rewarded based on the outcomes of, of, of what we do? And that's where I'd like to see the future be, us getting to in the future, mm. is transparency over you know and I'm not bothered as I said earlier on what what technique you use to do what if you can get patients if you can get good outcomes for patients because that's what we're here for by whatever means whatever stage of your career if you can get them as a new grad or you don't get them as a 30 year old I, I want to break out of that sort of that hierarchy and waiting for somebody to you know move on or retire before you get a promotion no, no, no. Let's get let's let's be rewarded for what we do as a profession, and that's transparency. Data data requires that. No, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think the the snag that I immediately can see is that data collection has a as an inherent it's it's difficult. And whilst I really like what you're saying about trying to use the competitive edge to try and get them to vie for more data collection, it 
it certainly has a, a bandwidth problem in how it scales up duration-wise. So someone might get great results, even if there was a perfect 12-month follow-up. You're still in, in the industry where we, we could get good results, but by sort of suggesting to a patient to live a life in a direction that might be deleterious, we think, at least the evidence suggests, deleterious to their long-term outcomes and health. So a classic, it's not a perfect example, but one in which you could get fairly decent um, results to some degree, um, even on functional scores, if you were to get the right balance of rest. So if you withdrew someone from things that were provocative, whilst you'd hope that functional outcome measures would level that off. If you were going off pain scores and to some degree if they reacclimatize their lifestyle to think, okay, I can't run anymore, then essentially you've had something, someone's done an intervention that's quite regressive compared to the health outcomes that we'd want to achieve for society. Now, that would, if data collection was perfect, that would catch up with them. Ten years down the track, you're thinking, well, you actually, you actually then set off a chain of events that disabled that individual far more and you just got a t at 12 months your EQ5D had improved and so whilst I like what you're saying in, in theory in practice I would be concerned at the fact that I, I personally do care what they're doing uh, and whether it's someone that's giving someone a set of squats or acupuncture regardless of what that would be a 12 month hour. I probably overplayed that point uh, that, I'd make the greater point about we don't have the outcome measures that I'd want to base a system on because people can play games or it might be un, un, unfair. So we have to get to that point. We'll never find the perfect system, mm. but the, we're not in a perfect system now, if you ask no, me. Absolutely not. So, so it's, it's, it's about trying to edge and evolve, uh, edge some progress and evolve and try, be, you know, we try some things and we'll fail quite a lot of the time, but that's how progress is made. I'd rather, I'd rather try and fail Sure. and get some things right and at least progress overall. I, I, what I would say, looking at finance, is that there's a pie that's getting smaller, and particularly talking about the NHS, so it's becoming particularly competitive around uh, professionals and parts of the pathway. And I think what everyone, certainly all, all your listeners, I'm sure, would, would think um, is that there's too much money going into um, the orthopaedic side, maybe not all your listeners, um, with some pretty poor outcomes sometimes, or no outcomes, we don't know what the outcomes <laughs> yeah, of, of, of a lot of surgery, yeah. which is supposedly the gold standard. I think for me the key thing about data is if we can demonstrate effectiveness and, and good patient experience, is to start to, to, to readdress where the pie is. And I think that if that could come earlier in the pathway, I truly believe, and this is born out of my years in sport working with some fantastic physiotherapists, is that I think we can make a huge difference for patients by reinvesting the money earlier in the pathway. And I, you know, and I, and I think we've got the opportunity with data to look at how we work with patients. So for instance, so here's something that might be controversial, is the chiropractic model of bringing someone back every month. So we can all be critical of that, and I'm critical of that, but for some patients that might be what they need, and that might give them the best outcomes. But where's the funding to see somebody monthly for, for the next 10 years? But that might give a great outcome in terms of um, chronic diseases, diabetes, obesity, etc., etc. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of physiotherapists are frustrated by the time they have with patients, and we can all make arguments for more or less time, but do we really know what's optimum? Let's get the data and demonstrate what's an optimum amount of time with patients. 
um, and, and, and see if we can really drive the outcomes and the experience. And I think, I think we need money to do that. So we, we need the data to make the case, to attract the money to, to, to make that improvement. And I think the potential is there. It's huge for the physiotherapy profession. And we've just got to show the benefit. And I was speaking to one of your, the, one of the Connect medical scientists, I don't know if that was his job title, doubt it was, but he, he certainly was telling me about that being his background only a few months ago and the way in which he dropped a few pennies in my mind about how to know what is optimal time for follow-ups and new patients and things like that, huge contentions in physiotherapy where people assume that more is better, well what does, how does the data play out, we have that information but it only comes if we collect it. Can it shows you just how versatile these numbers can be if, if we've got them? And so we've talked about it on a clinical interface level, operationally and in finance. And you're describing a process in which you struggle to strive for true holistic clinical excellence without them. And I think that, that, that certainly makes sense. It's about not using anything in isolation. So if you did use Andrew's concept of we had robust data and you rewarded people for outcomes, you wouldn't just do that. You'd still have clinical supervision. You'd still be sitting in clinic with them, um, and you'd see that they were doing some practices, maybe to play the, um, the system a little. Um, so that's where a robust governance framework, you know, actual time to supervise and governance, mm -hmm. rather than just letting people go off into clinic rooms. That's true, and I think I think what's interesting as well, and where I'm I'm most excited about physiotherapy, and we're, we're all passionate about so, so many of the similar things, but. The, the, the way in which we gather the data, and we're already saying the fact that earlier on in the conversation, clinical outcomes are optimised by uh, the character that comes through, through the rapport that you have, is that we've actually got an armory, uh, or, sorry, an army of, of clinicians that are then with that data, they've got that rapport in order to then sell that to the world if we can properly mobilise physiotherapists. They're surprisingly skilled in the, in the fact that they... They do things uh, on a daily basis with patients having difficult conversations that when they're then given, a, given the right chance to, they're, they're charismatic and interesting and, and sellable individuals that are better salespeople than they ever realised. It's just it's really hard to get that through, uh, but we do need to give them something other than abstract concepts to sell to the world, to the commissioners, to the media um, as well, of course, as I say, with my bias. Whenever we have these discussions on and off the air, sooner or later ends up talking about institutional and bureaucratic limitations to true clinical excellence. And I know that in my organisation, it's a concern that I have, whereas things, as things scale up, we sometimes end up more distant from it than we're used to. Um, as far as I'm aware, and, and, and this is my reading of things, the sociological and social psychology literature suggests people generally like to have their life and their work influenced by a system and the people that they feel understand them best and are closer and felt either in local in proximity or local in certainly in values. And it, our examples of what that's led to in, in, in life, shall we say, is named line managers and named supervisors that are attributed and somewhat responsible for that relationship, devolution of powers on various different scales, and regionalization that's, that's happened over the years in which across various nations and certainly health services as best possible. There is evidence of that being being useful, and it personalises it to some degree. So, how can small teams and services, or pockets of good practice within the teams and services that you guys work within and for, 
how, how can you scale it up without watering down their work and stopping it becoming over-systematized and, and bureaucratic? Nice brief question for you. <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it's, it's been an interesting journey and we, 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 we very much experienced that in, in the, as, as an organization we started off in the northeast of England and now we've become national um, and, and um, have a number of contracts. Uh, and I mean, I've experienced this personally myself because the, the, the model that we used, which, which just evolved, was that when we had our first contract outside the northeast, which was in Camden in London, um, I came down and worked in it and, and provided some leadership um, and, and, and tried to, to help the, the, the staff in the new service uh, develop in, in, into the ways of working that we, we were looking for. We've now got significant number of contracts and, and more recently I haven't been able to do that and, and and I really struggled with that because it was an opportunity for me because of the sort of person I am is to get out there get to know the people get to know the contracts the commissioners the local hospitals the orthopedic surgeons etc etc and I can't do that anymore um, so I guess what where we've evolved to is is we did regionalize so we've got three regions, North, Central and South, and um, have looked to develop the same infrastructure um, on, on a local level. Um, and Matthew, who sat next to me here, is our clinical lead for, for the South. Uh, and I'm, I'm delighted to say that, that I can, f I don't ever forget about the South, but, but I know it's in really good hands. Uh, and, and then, I'm sure Matthew, can talk about this that within that region that, that, that there's a structure as well, and I think, I mean, what what I do now, I guess, is I head towards retirement in however many years time. Um, That's news. There's a lot of fidgeting all of a sudden. And I'll show you what I'm going to describe. I don't do, but sit with my feet up with my cup of coffee and look at the data coming through. Uh, which, and I'm not going to go back talking about data because we've covered it hugely, but it's fascinating to just see what is going on. Um, and, and I'm clinical governance lead, so, so we've got clinical effectiveness, we've got patient safety, um, we've obviously got patient experience, all those aspects of, of, of governance that, that, that has to be um, done centrally. So we, we, we try to provide um, some really good central support functions for the regions for the services and for the teams um, so that everyone has got contact um, with, with somebody that they trust and, and it feeds up, up the chain uh, and I suppose from a clinical point of view I sit at the top of that chain and responsible to the board for, for, for clinical performance, safety, etc, uh, etc. Et so we, 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 we've tried to, to reproduce um, in small pockets what we started with and, and I guess that's the thing when, when Andrew started Connect, um, it, it clearly was a successful model on a very small scale and, and I'm sure Andrew will have comment about how we've managed to, to reproduce that on a, on a large scale and indeed a, a developing scale because we're getting bigger and, and that is a challenge to us. Will we get too big? Which is I think the question you're alluding to. That makes a lot of sense now when it comes to your... your Younger to the organisation, as in, as our introdu introductions an hour ago suggested, than than these two gents. But um, in terms of scaling, and, and have you come in at all and found that that challenge hasn't been 
um, adapted to, um, or have you found, as has been described, that this is something that feels it doesn't feel monolithic and large and bureaucratic? How have you felt? Um, I think that was probably one of my concerns when I was talking about a job with the gentleman in the room. That actually, that was one of my questions: is that I've known Connect via various channels, particularly CSP and other, um, for a long time, and I'd seen them grow. And that, the very question you've asked about how how are you maintaining? Well, I think it's a really good model. Great minds, great minds, same question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was one of my concerns, but I, I, I think that it's, they reassured me interview, and I've not found any evidence to the contrary. Um, and I think my own journey within Connect of the last year is probably typical of that, but I came in and I was brought in to look after two of the new London services to clinically get them established, get the, um, get the staff happy and confident with what they were doing, get the quality robust. Um, and now I've always got to the stage where they don't need me anymore, which is great, because that's, that's the whole ethos really about empowering the staff. And that answers your question about being bureaucratic. That, and big brother-like controlling, actually what we're trying to do is get the staff and the services to stand on their own feet and, and then step out of them. Be there for them and support them or give them the support function. So Graham and I are on the end of the phone if we've got a call to acquire that they need some advice on and there's nobody else around the clinic on a Friday afternoon. Um, and we've got all the support functions to into them. But actually we don't need Graham or myself working in the contract on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And that's conflicting. As Graham said, it's... He, it's nice to work in a contract, um, but actually, as they need you less and less, and particularly once you get your um, leadership tier in there, your team lead clinicians, your advanced practice physios, and they start to grow into a leadership role, then you're kind of stepping on their toes being in there anyway. Because mm. um, you're giving, you're trying to be on message of the team, but you're still going to give them 50 messages. So for me, it's about stepping out, and, I, and over a year, so I focused on those two contracts, and now I look up to six contracts. Uh, because I feel like I'm, I can trust those teams that are brilliant, so I don't need, they don't need me to turn up every day or don't need me to come and do clinics because they don't even need my clinical expertise apart from on the end of the phone every now and again. I think, I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm conscious, I sound like I'm bandwagoning to say this, but clinically, you and I, we don't tend to have many crosswords on stuff. I'm sure we'd find certain details if we went through case studies, but generally speaking, we've got a similar sort of ethos clinically. And what I'm hearing of you operationally and in terms of leadership with regards to empowering people does sound a lot like that clinical message. Have you personally scaled up your, how your interface with a patient to try and empower their function? Have you then done that as, or are trying to do that as a leader within teams and trying to facilitate better practice of others? Is it a very similar thing or does it, is it actually more different than I'm making out? No, I think it's a really good analogy that with a patient, my, my personal clinical ethos is about empowering the patient and about, uh, Peter, I think Peter Sullivan talks a lot about giving patients hope um, and control. Mm. And that, that, that's my ethos when I'm dealing with a patient, comes in with acute low back pain, I'm trying to give them hope and control as quickly as possible. And the same with our clinical teams, particularly as we often take on clinical teams in slightly difficult environments, they've been forced to change employer by a cheaply transfer, and this is all new. And we, nobody likes to be told they're going to work for another organisation. We like to choose our job, we like to choose our employer, we don't like that. So it's a difficult journey. Um, but say, for us, that for me is good leadership, is a giving them that hope and empowerment and then getting out of there as soon as, as soon as you possibly can, not running away and leaving them to it, but actually because they don't need you anymore, um, and then they just call on you as and when they need you. No, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Now, 
compared to 12 months, you, Andrew, you're, uh, you, you should be able to... You're fairly well qualified to answer this question is what I'm going to say. Well, so. I, I think it's a great question because I think it, it's a real risk, you know, and, and therefore that's what the board talk about because the board talk about strategy. We've got great people, you know, operational clinical leadership who can run the business. The, the business of the board is to think about what the future might look like and we do have aspirations to, to, to grow. So it is a real risk that we we'll consider. I, I'm going I thought that was a great answer. That that's you know Matthew has just answered that spontaneously. We hadn't planned this, and that's what I want. That's exactly what we want to hear. It's about it's about empowerment. Actually, what what is Connect? Connect is a support structure for services. You've got groups of clinicians who are working in a, in a borough or or in a, or in a county or in an area or in a, or in a service should be pretty self sufficient. But they need they need the supply chain of support from 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 Connect. The service should should stand alone, and the individuals there. We should just be you know giving them food and water, uh, and helping to, to develop the future. I just want to tell a little bit of a story, because you, you you brought it up as what you know when we were really small it was easy to, and and you're right when we were, um, twenty people thirty people. It was fairly easy to manage, and everybody would know everybody else, and everybody would know what was acceptable in terms of behaviour or uh, approach, um, and and that was. Then um, we grew, and um, uh, about four or five years ago, I started to realise that we got to a scale which exceeded the capability of the management team in order to to, del to deliver it safely, effectively, and and efficiently. So. At 30, good. At 120, not good. We then set about um, a, a revolution, I would say, over the last two or three years to get that quality back. And we've done that at the same time as we've more than doubled the size of the organisation. We're now 400 people. And now we're performing better. So actually, it's not to do with size, it's to do with the way that you do it. Now, what did we do? I recruited um, a, a managing director and a couple of non-exec directors who'd worked in businesses and organisations that were much larger than ours. So they knew that this is the infrastructure you need to have if you're going to be 200, 300, 400, 800, 1,000 people. I, I don't know what that looked like because I'm a physio by background. But there are, there are very successful organisations out there who grow, cope with the growth, manage to maintain the culture, which I think is the most important sort of foundation, and, and the quality of, of what they do. And I would argue, over the last few years, Graham, you'll recognise this and you to a lesser degree, Matthew, is we've got better despite getting bigger. So there's not necessarily a relationship between, between size, but, but it, it is a risk, and it, it's one that we, uh, it, it is, it, it, it's one that we focus on. What we haven't touched on very much, and, and talking about remote leadership, is the use of technology. There's loads of technology out there. You know, I got a, I got a text from um, British Gas two days ago saying, you know, we've got, a, we've got an engineer an engineer in the area tomorrow who's going to be free if you want to have your servicing done tomorrow. You know, we, we, we're not, we don't harness technology in, in, in our profession hardly at all, do we? No. You know, we're, we, we're doing what, what we did 30 years ago, largely. We might be tweaking things in slightly different ways. Where's the technology? We've talked about data and systems, but I'm talking about we've invested in a workforce system which now sends a text 
to staff on a Sunday night, I think it yeah. does, which kind of reminds them what the timetable for the week is. Because sometimes your timetable changes. You know, so people get it and they can ignore it and do it on Monday morning, but you know, it's there and it reminds them. Um, we're developing an app, a, a corporate app, because we want to communicate with, with people and engage people better. And that's what the profession needs. We need to welcome new ideas from the outside. We need the, you know, these guys to manage the clinical quality and they know all about it. But the other director's job is to create that environment to facilitate that being done. And we all, we all need to do that. It takes, it takes investment, but you have to be open-minded about it as well. So, to wrap up, Graham, if you can give us a, any final thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just reflect my, my own personal journey that outlined it when I introduced myself as, as a GP who knew nothing um, to somebody who is supposedly an expert now, and, and, and I see my expertise in, in clinical delivery personally, uh, but also organisationally of, 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 of a service. And I think, um, I mean, I hope, hope what we've been able to get, get across is our values um, and, and that as an organisation we are, we are passionate about delivering excellent care. I certainly am personally. I'm doing it less of it myself, face to face with patients, and, and, and trying to lead uh, a developing and growing uh, staff. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, my retirement is is coming up, not in the next few years, but it's not that far away. And I hope I hope to be able to look back or or, or at retirement look at um, a pathway that has changed with more investment in in rehabilitation, um, less intervention. That, that, that blend of biopsychosocial uh, um, care and, and at the end of the day that the patients are getting a good deal from, from the money that's invested on their behalf and, and you know I think Connect's been a great vehicle for me for that and, and, and uh, it's been challenging but I don't regret the moment of it. Fantastic. Matthew? Um, let's start. Um, <laughs> um, I think the sort of wrap up I think it, I think the overriding theme has been about clinical excellence and I think what we talked about is everybody's role within that and that we as an organisation connect are doing it in our way and are dedicated to trying to drive clinical excellence and efficiency with that. Um, I think it's a great time of opportunity for physiotherapists and particularly in the MSK field to really step up and take opportunities. But I also think there's huge risk, and I think to quote Karen Middleton, there's a huge risk of sleepwalking into obscurity and carrying on doing what we've always done. Um, and I think that hopefully what we're trying to do as an organisation is really just try and do things differently, innovate and drive the agenda forwards. Mm, no, that makes, it makes a lot of sense. And then, Andrew, if you can, if you can wrap us up, what are your final, final thoughts and any signposts you might have for us? Um, I, I probably just want to counterbalance a lot, a lot of what we've said because, you know, I, I, I think we are, we, well, I don't think, we are passionate about what we do. There's a certain element of pride, which is a, the seven deadly sins in this which we should be careful mm-hmm. but but in reality we know where we are we, 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 we don't have monopoly on good ideas we're enthusiastic and, and we're energetic and you know we're very focused on what we do but you know we're not we'll not be the best in the country with lots of services I'm agnostic you know some of those will be in the independent sector some will be will, will be in, in the NHS as I, as I said there's different ways for individuals to do things there's different ways for organizations to do things um, you know, we're transparent. I like to think that we're as transparent as we can be about the way that we want to do it. And not every not everybody will like that, um, and, and, and that's absolutely fine. Um, but I do think that um, 
there are certain fundamental things that we should be focusing on as a profession and that's around you know outcomes demonstrating value um, learning to communicate being prepared to modernize and, and, and innovate around both what happens for patients and the, and the staff experience and unless we do those things we're, we're, we're back to Matthew's point we're in a bit of, we're, we're in a bit of danger I, I think we're at a at a point where there are huge opportunities because we do add value when we do it well but the risks are that, but the, the, the stuff that is done well is di it diluted in its overall impact by the stuff that isn't done well so that if you're a GP who's got an, a role in commissioning and you get you know four patients come back one of them says yeah I've been to the hospital had a fantastic service and then two come back saying well it was alright I waited a long time and one comes back and says well I, you know I, it was a poor experience then that drowns out the, the, the really good performance. So we've got to drive the standards up and reduce the variation. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I thank you very much for your time today, gents. It's been really interesting and a wide-reaching conversation where we're all striving for clinical excellence and we can achieve that on clinical, operational and organisational levels. But I think the, the core theme is that it has to start with conversation and it just certainly doesn't end at any time without conversation so we've got to make sure we we keep talking and being open to new ideas and uh, i really do appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show i think it's been really interesting thank, thank you thank you. you that was session 46 i really enjoyed that conversation super interested i'm glad we we're able to recreate some of the points that we'd done off the microphone various times over 12 months and so uh, i hope you enjoyed it i certainly did and one of the things I want to just hover on as a, a bit of a final thought is is the, I, I can't help but, whenever when I have a conversation about outcome measures, I mean, as, as the data came up in the conversation, and rightly so, is that I do feel a, a bit of a hypocrite because I, I know full well how hard it is to, to collect all the data and the last thing you want to do with someone's leaving is to get them to fill out a, a, a final form or you go to you remember two and, and you didn't have them complete it or they only filled one side of two in the initial assessment because it wasn't your patient when it first when they first came on and there are all sorts of difficulties that come with that but as this conversation highlights it is really important the difference being that sometimes organizations and teams and services don't necessarily translate to the frontline staff uh, perfectly you know, how this data is used and how it then is going to influence their their jobs and, and, and can benefit them uh, as individual clinicians and as, as, of course, the obvious thing as services when that scales up. And so where possible, if you're finding, like me, where you, you, you're, you're guilty as many are of, of, of sort of that being a lower priority thing, then there's two things. There's a responsibility for knowing that really that's that's something that should become an increasingly important part of your role to justify your value. If you think you're doing good work, as many of you would, I hope, many of your listeners, our listeners, I just assume you're brilliant clinicians. Um, if you're doing the good work that I expect you are, then you need to start proving it and showing and trying to objectify that a little bit. And the, and the second thing is, though, if you're finding you're not particularly motivated because it just feels like it's superfluous waste of time because that data doesn't really go anywhere, doesn't, doesn't, you don't see it, you don't feel it, you don't encounter where that's used, then that's certainly a conversation that you need to point, the, uh, point your bosses and, and organizations and 
I don't know, trust directors, whoever it might be, in the direction of this conversation, uh, to hopefully so that hopefully they can understand the importance of it and they can demonstrate to you guys how it's working and you'll start to encounter this data and how it's used and how it can then demonstrate value as the profession. And like, like Andrew said, I think at one point in this conversation, get paid more and get paid what we deserved, um, hopefully more, if that is what we deserve. Um, huge thanks to Connect. I mean, one of the impressive things, I, I think it, it makes me reflect back, not just to, the, as I said in the intro, the conversation I had with Paula Deacon about the iPop service, but also to other companies such as like the ATOCP or um, Heather Watson's company, Designed to Move, Health and Work Matters, which is which is where the, the people just say, we think we're doing good, come and have a look. And that's essentially how I felt with Connect, which is just that you just, you know, essentially have a look and, and ask questions and, and then demonstrate what they're doing because they're confident that they're doing good work and doing good things. And the, and the way that they've done that is because they're so open to scrutiny. Uh, and that's what we like, shine a light on, on these ideas. Um, and so much like the other companies that I've mentioned before, this is, this is someone that we certainly are proud to work with and, and delighted to share some of their good stuff. There'll be more to come from them but in the meantime when it comes to the guests that we've had on today you've got to look out a few twitter handles for me to, to bombard you with now you've got matt wyatt on mrw physio and andrew walton at a walton underscore connect then you've got graham wilkes at wilksy 49 i like that one that's a good one and then you follow them as a company at connect underscore health underscore and then at msk ednet and hashtag msk ednet are the educational facet of the business that they're trying to share good practice by going on road shows around the country our very own jack march has done six events with them um, as i've rob tyre and matt wyatt and i know that uh, andrew cuff's doing a series on the shoulder you've got people like paul allen doing red flags as as i mentioned before we're going to try and bring you more of that so just phenomenal work uh, really just to share quality education now if you listen to physio matters you clearly want that so if it's coming to to a place near you these are free events so make sure you drop by because you will not be disappointed and and, and uh, we're just proud to be able to shine a light on what we consider to be good noises good ideas if you if you agree then please share with us and find us on twitter as usual in the usual spots um, I've said enough today, long episode, but hopefully worthwhile, and we'll certainly see you next month for more. But I'm fortunate this time that I don't have to do the cheesy sign-out, because I remembered, and so I got our guests somewhat reluctantly, because it is cheesy, let's be honest, but they said it, they spat it out, the, the reason you all tune in, which is... Apparently, you've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast. Discussing Physio Matters. Because Physio Matters. matters.